Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. You know, as a, as a pastor, I know how important the church is. In my own life, it's been in the church that I've had my best memories. It's where I came to know Jesus. It was in the church. I was baptized in the church. I met my wife in the church. We got married, had our children, not in the church, but they were dedicated in the church. All of my best memories, best experiences, right in God's house. But it's not just in my own life. I see God working in other people's lives in the church. I've seen people come to church and be freed of addictions. See people that were broken have this new life and new vitality over them. Amazing things happen in the church. I think one of the, 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 the greatest miracles that, I, that I've personally seen are when I see these relationships that most people would write off as, as a lost cause, as a train wreck. And God would start to work on them as they would come into church and sit under the preaching and the teaching and be around God's people. They would start to, to be different. They would start to have some healing in, in their lives. And then those couples would have this restored relationship and reconcile. Really amazing. I've even seen in my life, I've seen people who were divorced, totally separated, but still going to church, still living their own lives. But as they're in church, they're listening to God. They're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They're around God's people. And while that's all happening, God starts to work on them. And these divorced people would remarry and get back together. To me, that's amazing. It's really some of the most amazing miracles I've seen is when that happens. But it seems to only happen in the church. It doesn't happen at that scale in the world. There's something special that happens in the church. And that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today. I wanted to talk to you about relationships and how God uses the church, uses the scriptures and uses the teachings in the Bible to help us to have healthy relationships. If I had to summarize or give you my, my big idea, the main point today, it's this. God gives us the patterns and the principles for us to have healthy and thriving relationships. I'll say it again. God gives us the patterns and the principles for us to have healthy and thriving relationships. He gives these things to us. I believe that it happens in the church. I believe it happens in the scriptures. It happens around God's people. But however God does it, he gives you these patterns, these principles, so that you can have healthy, thriving relationships. And I'm not just talking about relationships like a marriage relationship. I'm talking about all aspects of relationships. Your friends, coworkers, families, parents, children. I want to be clear, though. Though I'm a pastor, I'm not the foremost expert in relationships. I, I know I have a lot of work to do in my own marriage, and I'm still working on relationship and people skills. But I can say this. The more that I've been around God's people in God's house, even just this past year, I can say that this is the, the best year of my marriage in the 20 years that my wife and I have been married. And the relationship that I have with my, my children and with other people, right now it's so rewarding, so enriching. And I, again, I believe it's because I'm, I'm taking these principles and these patterns that I see in the Bible, that I see taught in the Scripture, that I see lived out in other people. 
So I want to encourage you. Today, lean in. I, I, it, I don't want you to take this like this is going to be a, just a, a message for just married couples because it's not. If you're looking for a sermon on how to find the, your husband, that's next week. Just kidding. That, that's not going to be this message. If you're looking for the perfect wife, there was only one, and I, and I found her. I got her. So she's, she's not out there. No, this, this is a sermon to help you in all relationships. I, I really do believe that God wants you to have healthy, vibrant, thriving relationships. And I get that because I see it in Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Look at this. Jesus, uh, God said, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I believe this is the life that God has for his people. He desires, he, he wants us to have a life that is prosperous, that is successful, that is thriving in all aspects. But it starts in one place. It says right here, keep the word of the, Lord, of the law. He's talking about the word of God, the scriptures. Find the principles, find the truths in the Bible. And don't just read them. Don't just hear them. He says, meditate on them. He says to talk about them. Make sure they're on your lips. I believe today that as we're going through some of these rules, some of these principles and these patterns that are in the Bible, I believe that they're not just going to be in your head. My sincere prayer is that you're speaking them. And more than that, he says that you're doing them carefully, that you're carefully applying them to the various relationships that you may be in. So I want to jump right into it. Here's the first relationship. If we're looking at them, there's going to be five altogether. I had way more than that. I, I probably could add my ten commandments for relationships, but I had to shrink this down for brevity's sake. So today, I just want to give you five. Five of what I feel are the most helpful, at least they've been helpful to me, helpful rules for relationships. Here's the first one. Rule number one, have an inner circle. The first thing we have to understand is not all relationships are equal. There are going to be some people that deserve more access, more attention, more authority in your life than other people. Jesus understood this. Jesus had thousands of people that would follow him. He had thousands of people who watched him perform miracles, that saw him teaching and traveled with him. But ultimately, it wasn't thousands of people that stayed with Jesus in his toughest times. You know that after his death, burial, and resurrection, there were 120 who stayed with Jesus, who were loyal to Jesus, faithful to Jesus, waited like Jesus told them to do. But even out of those 120, there was only 12 disciples that Jesus broke bread with, people that Jesus would share his, his most intimate teachings and moments with. But even out of the 12 disciples, and Jesus would call them friends, he said, these are, these are not the, the closest. This wasn't his inner circle. I believe his inner circle were people like Peter, James, and John. It's because it's these three individuals, these three disciples, that when Jesus was facing his, 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 his toughest moments in life, when he was facing the agony of the cross, who did he invite to pray with him? In the middle of the night, he invited Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, to be with him to comfort him, to pray for him. Who is in your inner circle? An inner circle provides more than just camaraderie and friendship. It provides even wisdom and counsel. 
It says this in Proverbs 15.22. It says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Who are the counselors? Who are the people that you can go to for advice and counsel? When I was a young man, 19 years old, I fell in love. I met this woman. I, I eventually married her, but she, was, she still is beautiful, amazing, smart, loves God. And I was head over heels for her. I knew I wanted to marry this girl, but at 19 years old, I was still in college, didn't have a steady job. I was working, but nothing that I was going to be able to raise a family on. And I knew I wanted to marry her, but I didn't want to make the right I didn't want to make the wrong decision. So I remember going to my own inner circle. People, I could count them just on one hand. People that I trusted, I could confide in. These are people that had healthy relationships. They were successful. They were, they were winning. They loved God. And I knew they were for me. They would be honest with me. They would tell me if something was wrong. And I, invite, I remember inviting them into the conversation and asking them, what are their thoughts? And they helped me to see blind spots. They spoke wisdom into my life. They helped me to see what it means to, to be a husband, to be a protector, to be a, a pastor and a provider in your home. And I have to ask you, who's in your inner circle? Again, not everyone should deserve the same access to you. You don't want just anyone speaking into your life. You don't want anyone that has authority in your, over your life. But you want to invite people who, who are living straight, who are solid, who are strong. Their lives aren't upside down. Their finances aren't upside down. Their relationships aren't upside down. These are people that love God, love Jesus, and love you. Ask yourself, who is in your inner circle? The second thing that um, you need to ask yourself in addition to you know, who's in your inner circle is what, how are you going to speak? What are you going to say? Rule number two is speak well, but listen better. Hopefully, this is something that becomes a new pattern in your life. I know for me, there are times I've had to guard my speech. I've had to backpedal things that I've said. You know how important words are. I know in our church, we emphasize our words and making sure we say the right things and, and speak the right things. So first, we need to learn how to speak well. And that means that we know that there are good words and there are bad words. In my family, uh, we have these bad words. Uh, we've taught our kids, you can't say stupid. You can't call each other stupid. You can't say can't. I can't do it. I, can't, I, I just, I can't do it. We don't say those kind of words. There are certain bad words we don't speak in our family. When it comes to disagreements and arguing, we don't say words like always, you always, or never. You never. We don't say those words. Instead, we try to emphasize the good words, the words that show comfort and care. And I would say, speak well. Speak these words. Say words like, I'm sorry. That goes a long way when, you, when there's tension and difficulties. You say, I'm listening. I understand. I, I want to do better. I love you if it's, if it's a family member, someone that you can say that to. Or even saying things like, will you forgive me? Or I forgive you. These are words that bring care and comfort. Rule number two is to speak well. But it's not just speaking well. It's listening. And I would say we need to listen better. It says this in, um, in Proverbs 15, 28. It says, The heart of the righteous weighs its answer, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Sometimes we're too quick to let words out of our mouth. But the, 
writer of Proverbs says, if you're a righteous person, a good person, then you know how important your words are. You know how weighty they can be, how they can influence someone. The Bible says that our words can bring life or death. When we understand that, when we know that, it doesn't mean it in a literal way, but it can speak life or death to a relationship, to a friendship. So again, it's not just speaking well, but it's also listening well. How do you listen? And I would say listening happens with your time and your attention. Of course, it means putting aside your phone, making sure the TV's not on when you're trying to have a conversation with someone. There have been times as a pastor, I'll go to someone's home. They've got the TV on, a radio's playing, people are on their phone, and they, they want to have a conversation with me. You can't have a conversation with all of these distractions. If you're going to listen, listen well. One of the highlights of my week is when I come to church on Sunday. In the morning, one of my sons comes with me alone. And then on the way home, I pick another son, and we drive home alone together. And it's this coveted time where the boys almost argue about who gets to spend time with daddy alone because it's not just me. They finally get to sit in the front seat of our, of our car. But they do appreciate that while they're in the car with me, they have my undivided attention. They know that when I'm speaking to them or listening to them, the radio's not on, I'm not on my phone, they're not distracted by their TV or one of their brothers, they're not competing with mommy or their siblings, but they have daddy all to themselves. And I love that time. Most of the time, we're not talking about things that really interest me. We're talking about Minecraft or what's better, Star Trek or Star Wars. Leave it in the comments what you think. We're talking about these things not because they're important to me, but because I want my boys to know that I'm listening to them, that what matters to them, what's important to them at that moment is important to me. So I'd encourage you, in your relationships, speak well, but listen better. Listen with the intent to understand. Listen with the intent to let them know you're here, you want to listen. In truth, what I'm trying to do is lay the groundwork so that when they're 15, 17, 21, I still want to be in their inner circle. Right now, they're in my inner circle. I invite them in. We talk about family matters. We talk about things that we're thinking about as a family. But I also want them to keep me in their inner circle. When they're making decisions, when they need prayer, when they need counsel, I want them to know daddy wants to listen. Daddy wants to be a part of that conversation. We know that speaking well and listening will only get you so far, though. Sometimes we know that there's going to be hurts. Sometimes we know there's going to be conflict. Rule number three is to pick your battles. Pick your battles. You really need to know when it comes to relationships, you can't make everything something you're going to fight over. You can't make everything something that you're going to go to war over. You need to know what's big and what's little. In, um, it means that you, uh, you understand that even though you might be a person with great convictions, you don't have to turn everything into a confrontation. You don't need to turn everything into a fight. Again, it says this in Proverbs, so much wisdom in Proverbs. In 1911, it says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. First thing it says in Proverbs, one of the things it says is to overlook an offense. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It just means that you're bigger than that. You're not going to allow yourself to get sucked into another argument or a moment to disagree or more drama. There are times when you can just overlook it. 
You say it's not a big deal. You pick your battles. It also uses this word patience. If you, uh, if you grew up reading the King James Version of the Bible like I did, many times in the, in the Bible it doesn't use the word patience. It uses a different word, two words, long-suffering, long-suffering. And I feel like that more accurately captures what we feel like when we know we've been wronged, we know we're right, and we know they're wrong. It's like we're suffering in silence, and we want to correct the situation. But when you pick your battles, you're making a decision. You're saying that we don't have to fight over everything. I'm not going to fight over the toothpaste or the toilet seat or the temperature of the car. These are not the kind of things that we need to have a battle and, uh, and, and go to war over. There's, um, in my own life, in my, my family's life, my wife and I have kind of divvied up some of the responsibilities in our house. And uh, it's kind of an unspoken thing. It just kind of happens. But, uh, but I like folding the laundry. I fold it, put on a podcast, watch a video. It's kind of therapeutic, relaxing. So I enjoy folding the laundry. And my wife puts it away. And um, a few weeks ago, I realized, uh, I realized something. I, I was going into one of my boys' drawers and taking out one of their shirts, and I realized that the, the shirts were not folded the way that I had folded them. Someone had taken the time to unfold all of my clothes that I had folded, refold them, and then put them in the drawer. It was my wife. And I, I, was, stuck, I, I was stumbled by that or, or struck by that because who would do that? And how long has this been going on? What I realized in that moment is that my wife is incredibly patient. That she and I had learned, I had learned the right way, she had learned the wrong way, but she learned how to fold clothes differently than I did. But she never brought it up. She never nagged me. She never argued with me. She never even asked me to refold the clothes the way that she would fold them. I suddenly realized my wife is an expert at picking battles. She knew. This was not something worth bringing up. It wasn't something worth arguing over, but it was something that was still important to her. So she didn't take offense to it. She was very patient about it. And to this day, she's never asked me to fold the shirts the wrong way, the way she folds them. The fourth thing, the fourth thing that I see in, in the scriptures that will give us um, these, uh, that will set us up for better patterns and stronger relationships. I call it rule four. It's remember the Matthew 18 model. Remember the Matthew 18 model. If, um, if you're familiar with Matthew 18, it talks about conflict because there are times that you can't pick your battle. The, the sin, the offense is too grievous. It's too real. It's too raw. You can't just look the other way. You can't pretend it didn't happen. You have to say something. So what do you do in those situations. Matthew 18 gives us the model. I think one of the first things that Matthew 18 teaches us is that not all conflict is sinful. Not all conflict is sinful. Some conflict, some conflict is, is sinful. It's, um, it, it could be because it comes from sinful desires. It could be because it's uh, unhealthy competitiveness. But that's not all conflict. Some conflict comes because of a misunderstanding. It comes because of different values, different opinions, different desires and hopes. And it's these kind of disagreements that can lead to conflict. The question is, when conflict comes, 
How do you keep it healthy? Because you know what happens when conflict gets unhealthy. It festers, it turns into resentment, even hatred. You start to wish ill will, maybe gossip about the person. We don't want to go that way. So how do you keep conflict healthy? Matthew 18 teaches us that. Here it is. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. I love that. First of all, go and point it out. You don't have to ignore it. There are times to pick your battle, but then there are times, sorry, we got we to gotta talk about this. Go and point out their fault. Point out that sin. And he says, just go between the two of you. You're not ganging up on them. You're not trying to rally people for your cause. Set up the stage so that when they walk into the room, it's suddenly them against everyone. That's inappropriate. But he says, first, go to them. Point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. That's the goal. That's the hope. Not that you're winning the argument, but you're winning your brother. You have to ask yourself when conflict come, comes, when disagreement comes, can you win them over? Are, is that your hope? Do you just want to be proven right? Do you want to just be able to, to, to get that moment where they apologize to you? Is that what you're looking for? Or are you trying to win them over and keep that, that friendship or that relationship, that marriage, to keep it strong? How do you do that? How do you win somebody over? I was... Uh, reading about sociologists, and they said, whenever there's a, a disagreement or a tough conversation that needs to take place, that tough conversation only, it, it doesn't have a big window of, of making a, a dent or, or making a change. The sociologist said you have three minutes. It's within three minutes of starting that conversation that the other person knows where this is going. Is this going to be an eternal conflict that goes on and on because we're just never going to come to an agreement? Or is this person for me? Is this person open to dialogue? So I'd say the first thing when it comes to having this kind of, this kind of tough conversation where you have to talk to someone about a sin or an offense, something that they've done to you, some fault, you need to, what the sociologist said, they said, start sweet. Start sweet. In those first three minutes, Make sure they know you're not here to criticize, you're not here to blame, but in a time when you have their attention, when you're able to look at them eye to eye, not when people are hungry or tired, they just got home from work, but you're ready to have a conversation that might go a little deeper. In that moment, in those three minutes, you have three minutes to win them over. You're not going to do it by, by badgering them, nagging them, criticizing them, but try to win them over. Not too long ago, I... I was having one of these tough Matthew 18 kind of moments. Someone, uh, th this friend of mine, was going through a very tough time. And he was, uh, he was very hurt. He wasn't getting a lot of sleep. And in, this, in his state, he was saying some things that just weren't true. He said, oh, I feel like you're not for me. I feel like uh, I can't trust you now. And uh, in, in this... In listening to him say this, I, I was immediately, I was shocked and I wanted to get defensive and I could feel my reflexes and getting ready to argue with him, but I immediately had to, to kind of sit back and listen. That's an important thing. In a Matthew 18 moment, it's not just speaking and starting well, but it's also listening and understanding. What's their perspective? What are they trying to communicate? 
And that means monitoring your tone, making sure that it's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. Your body language matters. I'm not rolling my eyes. My arms aren't crossed. My posture needed to communicate that I'm listening and that I want to understand you. So I, I remember my response and, and I remember how I told him, you know who I am. We've been friends for many years. You know that I've only been for you. I've never tried to undercut you. I, I've, I've never tried to, to hurt you. I've always been transparent with you. What I was trying to do in that moment was reestablish the kind of relationship that we have. And I would encourage you, in Ma- if, if you follow the Matthew 18 model, and you have those ton- tough conversations one-on-one, try to establish or reestablish the relationship you hope you have, that you once had, that you want to win them over to that situation, to that place. Because again, the question isn't, do you want to win the argument? The question is, you wanna win, do you want to win your brother, your sister? Do you want to win your spouse or your coworker, your friend, your parent, or your child? Do you want to win them over? That's the goal of the Matthew 18 model. And then it says this. This, is, um, this would be our fifth rule. I'll, I'll finish it on this. Fifth rule, rule number five, is follow the golden rule. I don't know if you know the golden rule. I, I grew up with it. Every single week I heard it in, a, in an organization called the Royal Rangers. If you know the Royal Rangers, put it in the comments. I'd love to know what outpost you're in, and we could talk Royal Rangers some other day. But in Royal Rangers, we repeated the golden rule every single week. It was ingrained in me, and it's helped me so much. What I once memorized, I've since then tried to live by. It says this in the golden rule. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 12, so in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. If you wanted to get the cliff notes of the entire Old Testament, it's this. If you wanted to summarize all of the laws and the the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament, you could summarize it in one sentence. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Jesus knew that this is the brilliance of Jesus. He really was a a genius communicator. Jesus knew how difficult it is for us to see things from other people's perspective. He knew that many times we cannot put ourselves in other people's shoes. So Jesus said, put yourself in your shoes. How would you want to be treated? Again, this is the genius of Jesus. Jesus knew that you and I, if we're honest, we tend to be selfish. We tend to be self-centered. And Jesus uses that that selfishness, that self-centeredness, and says, use that. What would you want in this situation? It's hard to imagine or think about what someone else may want, but what would you want? He knew that deep down we all want self-protection, self-promotion, There's self-interest. Jesus uses that in in a clever way. And he says, now use that for other people. In every relationship, in fact, this could probably summarize all of the laws or all of the rules that we've looked at in today's message. It could be summarized in the golden rule. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Ultimately, this comes down to to having a, a life and having relationships that are graceful, that are full of grace, that give lots of room for misunderstanding, 
that are very generous to other people. Because Jesus is saying, how would you want to be treated in this situation? Wouldn't you want someone to give you the benefit of the doubt? Wouldn't you want someone to listen to your complaint, listen to your concern? Wouldn't you want someone to check in on you, to call you, to spend time with you? None of us want to be called or asked for things just when, we, just when they need us or need something from us. Again, the, math, the, math, the, uh, the golden rule provides so much wisdom and so much insight into all of our relationships. We all want to be recognized. We all want to be heard. We all want to be appreciated. And sometimes it, it takes tough moments for us to really appreciate the golden rule. I can remember when I first started teaching. I took some advice from some principals and teachers, people that had been around longer than me, and they said, listen, when it comes to teaching, you got to make sure you're strict, make sure the students know you're, you're in charge of that classroom, make sure you own it. That's your kingdom. You're the king of it. They didn't say that, but basically you get the gist. And I just remember them saying, you got to make sure that you set the standard high and you keep that standard, keep the expectation. So I took that advice, and it did. It served me very well. It was tough on my students. It meant that if a student was late with their work, they weren't getting any credit for it. If they were out of line, even a little bit, out of dress code, they, uh, they got written up for that, or detentions. I was a tough teacher. And something happened. I remember when I, when I went back to school, and I was working on my own master's degree and trying to juggle full-time student, full-time work, being married, having boys, having kids, still trying to do other things and enjoy life. And I just remember juggling all of these things and having to ask my professors, ask my instructors if they would accept my work late. And do you know what their response was? Of course. And that was so humbling to me because in that moment, I was, I was given all this grace, all of this mercy that I didn't deserve because they had their rules and I wasn't, I wasn't meeting them. I wasn't meeting the guideline. And that taught me something. When I went back to teach and when I was teaching my students, I still had high expectations for them, but I was no longer going to be merciless. I tried to be more compassionate, more graceful, more understanding with, with uh, where they were and, and what, they were, what they were doing. See, the golden rule is asking yourself, how would you want to be treated? How would you want your spouse, your friend, your coworker to treat you? Now treat them that way. And ask yourself, in all of the different relationships you have with your coworkers, what does it mean to, to live out and practice the golden rule? Maybe it means that you're sharing some of the credit, that you're celebrating all their wins, that when they lose, you don't highlight it, but you cover it. What does it mean to, to live the golden rule with a spouse? Maybe it means you're not bringing up their past. You're not bringing up every mistake or every shortcoming. Something powerful happens when you live by the golden rule. You start to see reciprocity take place. Where because you've done something for someone else, it's this added benefit. It's not even mentioned in here. But because you're doing something for them, they want to do something for you in return. I told you earlier that, I, uh, that my wife and I fold laundry differently. And you know, I told you, she never nagged, she never asked me to refold it. But ever since I saw the, the, those clothes folded her way, she won me over. The golden rule worked. I just, 
I was so impressed by that that without any asking, no nudging, no notes or snide comments or roll of the eyes, none of that, I just started folding the shirts the wrong way, her way. And that's the power that comes with the golden rule. I think it's why Jesus said you can summarize all the law, all the word, all the, 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 the laws of the Old Testament with this one rule. Treat others as you would want to be treated. And I think that's a good place to end. Maybe just one more thing. Coming back to our, our anchor scripture, the, the one from Joshua 1.8, it says this again, keep this book of the law, all the principles, all the patterns, all the, the rules that we've looked at today, right from the word of God, it says keep these always on your lips. I do pray that it changes the way that you speak. It says meditate on it day and night. I pray that it changes the way you think. Not just today, but day and night. Tomorrow, this week. And he says, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. My prayer is that you're able to do this faithfully. Maybe it'll take you some time to get used to it. It's difficult. It's hard. You don't feel comfortable with it. None of us, you know, because we are, if we're honest, we do tend to be selfish. None of us want to be in a, in a place where we're vulnerable. We have to now think of others. But he says, do these things. And then he says, if you do, then you will be prosperous and successful. And that's, that's God's heart for you. That's my heart for you. We want to see you prosperous, successful, not just in businesses or in your mind, but in every relationship in your life. We want you to win. I hope that your marriages and your friendships, they're thriving. And they're not just temporal, uh, temporary, but, but they're, they're enduring. They last for a long time. So I pray that your marriages, that as you start to build your life around some of these principles and patterns, that your, your marriage benefits, your whole life benefits. I hope you, I hope you believe that too. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.